0: Thank you everyone for joining us again on the Vitalist Spark podcast. Today we're talking about systems change with Feeding Matters. Jacqueline Peterson is the president and CEO of Feeding Matters. She's been in that position for a bit and she's been at the organization for, gosh,
1: over 10 years. Yeah.
0: yeah. So we're really excited to have you on here to talk to us about a 2016 innovation grant, the predecessor to the systems change grants. And hopefully you can tell us what that effort took, how it's evolved, and what it's leading into now for Feeding Matters and all the partners with whom you work. It's the first thing that we always like to do here on the podcast, Jacqueline, is have everybody introduce themselves, tell us who you are, how you got into the work that you're doing, what it means to you. Thor's floor is yours.
1: Thanks, Sergio. And thank you so much for having me here today. Like you said, I'm Jacqueline Peterson. I'm CEO of Feeding Matters. I have been with this organization for over 10 years. Although I've only been in this position for the last just over three years, I kind of took over right in the middle of the pandemic and just sink or swim moment and have loved every minute of it. So my background is actually nonprofit management. And then my graduate work is in healthcare innovation and systems practice. And so in that sense, I felt like finding Feeding Matters was just an amazing coincidence or serendipity at play because it was the perfect marriage of my love of the nonprofit sector and helping make a difference in this world and really looking at the challenges of our society and what we can do to impact at a system level populations and millions of children. And that's what we're trying to do at Feeding Matters. Feeding Matters is a national nonprofit organization with an international reach, but we are founded and headquartered here in Arizona. So we like to use Arizona as our playground to not only support the system here in Arizona, but to also uh, support our national efforts. And our organization has been around since 2006. We were founded by Shannon Goldwater, who had triplets who were born 14 weeks premature all of them struggled with feeding. And it really gave her the passion to be able to say, this isn't working. There's a better way. These clinicians aren't talking to each other. Everybody's approaching this from a different place. We need to do something to bring this field together. So in that feeding matters is here, not only to support families and be by them in their journey, but to also educate professionals and really look at how can we advance the system of care and advance the field um, for feeding? So that's our advocacy awareness
0: work. Let's go a little bit deeper into not only vitalist history with, with feeding matters, but I mean, back then we were St. Luke's Health Initiatives. And, and we, we were had- Popsicle Center. <laughs> we <were> Popsicle. <laughs> we both had
1: different names. <laughs>
0: so we both had different names. We had given you a 2011 and a 2010 medical assistance grant to work on pediatric feeding issues and then in 2016 that evolved into that innovation grant and so our history goes back a while if you can dig a little bit deeper into where that work sort of just came from right You give us a little bit of history into your founders personal struggles with it systems changes is a long game right so 2016 you get that grant you get three years to work on it, but then that continued, right? There was pre-work, there was work during the grant, and there's that work continues. So what's that like for people who may not know what systems change takes and how it works?
1: Yeah, that's a lot, Sergio. So I'll kind of start with the first grant that you shared, which is the two grants that really supported some of our identification tools. And I think it's an interesting story to follow because It shows even in our history, how you have to go through different twists and turns to be able to identify like what is needed to solve the problem that is your mission. And that's how I kind of look at the mission of our nonprofit, which is we're trying to solve a problem. And so the award that we received from at that time, St. Luke's health initiatives was to support our early identification questionnaire, our infant and child feeding questionnaire. And that was the product of our founder. And then my predecessor really getting the healthcare professional community together from across the country and really experts across the world to say, I know you all disagree on how you treat this. There are some people that really advocated for one treatment style and then other people that advocated for another treatment style. And they said, what can we all agree on? It's hard, especially in a polarized field and a polarized system that I think a lot of nonprofits are finding themselves in to figure out where can we even start to make some of those adjustments and changes. And so they said, okay, where can we agree on? And each side agreed that we weren't seeing these children early enough that we were seeing them at four and five years old. But you think back of their feeding journey and they had trouble since birth. And so That really led us to say, okay, let's think about an early identification tool and how can we leverage a tool to be able to help facilitate conversations with parents and professionals at their well child visits with their pediatrician? How can we use this tool to make sure that we're catching these feeding struggles early on? And so that's really what we invested a lot of our effort in besides our typical programming was how can we look at early identification. But what I think is really interesting and kind of why I brought up that bit of tangent before our 2016 grant effort was we were down that track of we need this tool to get early identification of feeding struggles. But even in our documentation, and since I've been here so long, I like can go back and look. It's very interesting to go back in our history and look at our documentation, but we were calling it many different things. We were saying, oh, feeding problems, feeding struggles, difficulty feeding, and you're diminishing the value of something when it doesn't have an identity. And so we kept asking why we kept trying to figure out what the problem was as we were advocating and sharing about how important this was. Why weren't we getting the attention of people? Why wasn't it as impactful as we knew it was? And that's when our founder had the vision that it's not treated as a standalone condition. It's treated as a symptom of another problem. And so in that journey of asking why and continuing to try to zoom out and explore the challenges within the system, We were able to see, okay, that's maybe one of the root causes. There probably are many, but one of the root causes to why this issue continues to go underdiagnosed or missed, because it's not considered a valid condition. And we were sharing at an event as we were, as we had this idea and we were kind of brainstorming it with people and they're like, oh, huh. So if you name it and it becomes a diagnosis, they might have to teach it in school. And it's like, yeah, exactly. It's not currently being taught in school because it's not considered a condition. And so that was really the impetus for us to start this journey. And we were grateful to Vitalist to be able to do that with and to be able to take a chance on us to say, hey, we think that this is a big issue. It's a, a bigger issue than people are realizing it. And here is our idea of what the root cause is and almost our theory of what the root cause is. And so (laughs) that was in 2016 and you asked for past, present, future. And I know we'll kind of get into a little bit of that, but to kind of speed up from there, we had the idea and then it took many different iterations from there. We were like, okay, this needs an identity. So what did we do? We brought like a marketing firm in, let's name it. And the marketing firm helped us name it. But then we bring the healthcare professionals in and they're like, we don't like the name. And that's not going to work for us. <laughs> and so then we were like, okay, we need to bring the healthcare professionals together and talk to them about this. And they named it pediatric feeding disorder. They came up with with our support, the definition of pediatric feeding disorder, which is when a child is not eating appropriate for their age and there is dysfunction in the medical feeding skill, nutrition, or psychosocial domains. And the thing that is the most unique about this diagnosis that I think, and I haven't researched this, but it might be the first diagnosis here in the United States, at least that's put on this framework called the ICF, which is the International Classification of Function Disability and Health. And I think we're conditioned in healthcare to think of things in a diseased state, but feeding is, and, and most Health things are about function. And so this diagnosis was laid on that international framework. And the group of professionals and with us came up with this framework, published the work in the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. And then we were able to partner to advocate to the CDC to get pediatric feeding disorder to be a standalone diagnostic code available in electronic medical records. And that came out in October, 2021. And so when you look at things over time, this idea started for us in 2015. We received some of the funding in 2016, as as you mentioned with the grant and in some of the other support we've received from our community. And we felt like we did it pretty fast and it still was seven years. But even when we were trying to achieve the diagnostic code with the CDC advocacy work, people were telling us, oh, It's not even worth it. Like we've been trying for 10 years and we haven't been able to get anything done, but we were able to do it in two, which I think shows the importance and that we were on the right track that like, maybe our theory was right, that this is a root cause. And since it's come out. And there's still so much more, but since it's come out, it's been so interesting to see the ripple effect and the domino effect of actually calling something what it is, and that it is a standalone diagnosis and it's not a symptom. And so that's been really cool since 2021.
0: For those people for who may not know what pediatric, I mean, you, you gave us the definition, right? But how could it exhibit itself previously when it wasn't a standalone diagnosis? And if it wasn't, who was treating it, right? Was it physical therapists who were treating it as a swallowing condition? What was that like? And why was it so important so that it could be treated and actually not only diagnosed, but also come up with proper diagnoses and, and treatment plans?
1: Yeah, it was across the board. So one of the concerns we had was that it was just assumed that you would have feeding struggles. Oh, you were born premature. Feeding's just going to be a difficult journey for you. And so deal with it, which while it's true that PFD is a comorbidity to being born premature, it doesn't mean that it's just this life that you have to accept, that being is going to be difficult. And that it, it is a very true statement, but there are resources to help. And that's why early identification is important. The other piece that was really challenging, and that's why we tried to think about the diagnosis differently, was that everybody was coming at this from their discipline. So you ask kind of who treats this. There are physicians who see children that they may think are picky eaters or who have some challenges feeding. And depending on the lens that they view this through, they are using it from a physician's lens. And so then it's, how can we treat like that? What tests do we need to take? What medication do we need to take? Maybe we'll send them off to therapy. And that's kind of the the frame. Psychologists were calling this ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, and they were only thinking about it from the psychologist's frame of mind, which is how can we, what do we need to do to to talk through it, or, or there are there behavioral techniques? And then on the therapy side, you have speech language pathologists as well as occupational therapists who are the most common feeding skill providers that treat pediatric feeding disorder or previously feeding struggles, depending on which discipline you're talking to, they would say, oh, we're we're treating dysphagia, which is like the swallowing uh, of it. But when you think about feeding and function, there is, can I bring the food to my mouth? Can I chew it, move it in my mouth? Can I swallow it? And the whole system that happens. And so I think for us, the challenge was each discipline was coming at this from their perspective and their lens. And that's why I think the work that we do as an advocacy organization is so important. We were able to bring everybody together to say, I know you're viewing it from this perspective, but let's think about this overall and let's work through this at a case study level. And so when we were in the consensus room together, That was the biggest piece was everybody sharing their perspective and understanding and being able to come to a place of, of shared understanding and shared language. There was, it was really cool. There was not the power dynamic that I think you sometimes see in healthcare between physicians and therapists. Everybody was really dedicated to if you're dropping a child off at a preschool and you have to say, this is how you feed them because they eat different from their peers. That is pediatric feeding disorder. And how can we support families to get better access
0: to care? That's really great. What's funny is you you mentioned all these therapies. My mom's an occupational therapist and I was actually born three months premature. Oh. And I remember as a kid, I had to go to a, to an SLP to sit there and learn how to eat my soup. Although I didn't even think about it I just my mom would take me and I would eat my soup, and that was it. So, just things that without a diagnosis for it could have been treated differently. Again, I was fortunate enough to have a therapist who raised me and knew that she had to watch well, out for these things.
1: Yeah. And she knew the signs, she knew who to talk to, she was probably able to articulate to your pediatrician, her colleagues in the speech world, what needs to happen. And I think that's also why the diagnosis is so unique and so different is that we were seeing lots of families and actually are still seeing lots of families go to things like feeding therapy, when maybe we haven't figured out what might be going on, and there's an undiagnosed allergy. And so if it's painful to eat, And we're doing feeding therapy, but we haven't figured out the medical and or nutritional side of things. Um, We've got to unravel all of it before we proceed. And so that's why the kind of the nature of our four domain diagnostic criteria is really important.
0: Talk to us about that four-domain you know diagnostic criteria. What does that what does that mean, right? You guys had to bring together lots of partners because you had done that pre-work prior to that grant, and then during the grant, you had to bring together a lot of people, right? So talk to us about that effort from beginning to end. Right? <laughs> yeah,
1: I it, think it we're still ends. in the middle I mean, of it.
0: <laughs> it. It never <laughs> it ends, right? That's never what ends. No. What's it like to bring all those people together? I know that sometimes it's a little easier when partners are are sort of heading in the same direction, but there's still, everybody has to know their own role. And I think that's something that in the systems change realm, especially when you're dealing with coalitions, can be a little tricky. So what was that, what was bringing together all those partners like?
1: So when we did the consensus effort, everybody was really passionate. And I think that passion, it is so important to capitalize on for the work that you're trying to do as the facilitator of bringing everybody together. But I think that passion can also turn really quickly if there are disagreements or respect isn't a part of the conversation or anything like that. So I think that was important to keep in mind uh, through the consensus effort. Once the consensus paper happened and we were able to publish, we continue to do more coalition building, more advocacy work in regards to the local system here in Arizona. We were able to bring together healthcare professionals to say, like, what are you seeing on the ground? Like, here's what's coming down the pipeline while we wait for this publication to happen. What do we need to do here? And it's it just goes to show that sometimes timing is a really important thing in this effort, because. We couldn't make some of the headway on the ground until the code happened. And it's stuff that we're almost coming back to now, several years later of, okay, the code's been out there for a while. Now we need to come back to it. And so I think that's another important thing from a systems change perspective is knowing when timing is appropriate and knowing what timing you need to pursue and what your really North Star is that you may need to take some alternative routes to get there. Another example of that is something that we're facing currently. I mentioned the diagnosis from psychologists, ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. That was a diagnosis that came out of the realm of psychology. And so because it came out of the realm of psychology and it predated the pediatric feeding disorder diagnosis, the eating disorder world was all about this diagnosis, started studying it, started going after research dollars for it, all of the different things that they needed to do, because it was this emerging new diagnosis, these infants and children that we've been seeing for so long that have just been called problem feeders or picky eaters. And so just recently, we just did the same thing of bringing together people. We brought together the eating disorder world and the feeding disorder world to say, hey, some of these children that we think or you think are ARFID kids are probably PFD kids that haven't been identified and we haven't thought about the four domains. We haven't thought about is something medical going on, is something in the feeding skill ring realm going on, is something nutritionally going on, and something from the psychosocial domain. And so I think the way that we approach our work is probably slightly unique in the sector. Because we don't get hung up on, we said we were going to do this in this timeline. Because oftentimes, we have to slow down to get other people on board to go further. And it's it's a quote somewhere, and I'm probably going to totally butcher it. But it's like, when the leader gets too far ahead of the pack, they start to look like the enemy. And I think that's something that we keep in mind a lot. No matter if we're bringing together experts from across the world or experts together in Arizona in our backyard to figure out what we need to do at a grassroots level. That coalition building is really important to be intentional about. And then I think I've learned a lot from the 2016, 2017 work up through now. And I think we approach our consensus building And facilitation and coalition building work a lot different. We are much more intentional about our value setting, about our norm setting, and making sure that the people that we're bringing into the room have the ability to be open-minded and in line with the values that we really believe as an organization. And our, our value set is that we're innovative, inclusive, and collaborative.
0: That's great to hear that you're so that you're taking those learnings and you're you're moving them forward and making sure that you implement those things. So, who who were the partners involved and what was that process like? What kind of challenges did you encounter? What kind of surprises did you encounter? There's
1: many different partners at many different levels. So, nationally, our partners included children's hospitals national associations, like the speech and language pathology association, which is ASHA, the occupational therapy association, which is AOTA. Pediatric gastroenterology has their own association and I'm a big like mind mapper. And so that's how I kind of kept it all straight. was like, once you like can map it all out, how do you like keep asking yourself who we're missing at the table? And so nationally, those are the partners that we always tried to have some sort of connection to, whether it was that they were a part of the conversation or they were just updated that it's happening. And I'd say still continue to. We really tried to keep in mind the individuals that we were inviting, what they were representing. Was it a a particular discipline? Was it a community setting versus a hospital setting? So when we think about diversity and inclusion in healthcare, we were trying to think about not only geography discipline but also there is such a divide between what community setting and early intervention is seeing versus what the hospital based efforts are seeing or heavily resourced academic institutions and universities they sometimes they sit in their ivory tower and it can be hard to get the two fields to talk to each other so those are some of the partners that we've brought together The interesting learning that we've had in our history in doing that has been, we were founded by a mom to triplets who is a huge advocate, a passionate advocate and powerful person to be able to have the vision of feeding matters, have the vision of pediatric feeding disorder and get everybody to the table to make it happen. For me as a follower of this 10 years ago or so, like totally bought in. But when you start to talk to clinical populations, and it's not everyone, but it's some are not interested in hearing the patient story or having patients at the table or doing this work in collaboration with patients. And so I would say that not only as we were trying to get this done, we were also facing a little bit of backlash from like, well, who are you as parents and as a parent organization to be the ones to do this work? And in our minds, we're like, well, if we weren't here, this work wouldn't be getting done. Like you've all had this for so long. And so we try our best to be collaborative and to just work in partnership with others. But there were some, sometimes especially, and I think it's softened now, but they're definitely in those early years of, we did the consensus paper. There may have been hurt feelings about how we organized the consensus paper. I think that's another lesson that I have of like, as you think about bringing partners to the table, we didn't, I think, understand the full politics that were involved in this very small field. And so I would wonder if that's a part of it too, but there was definitely a huge piece of like, well, your parents. And so the learning we had from that was like, We went from trying to say that we were not necessarily parents and we were just trying to support this work and kind of stepping out of it to being more comfortable, stepping into our power as a patient advocacy organization and as really trying to make this effort happen.
0: I'm really intrigued on on, when you mentioned the parents, right? I think it's, it's easy. You mentioned the ivory tower. And I think it's easy for people who are either in academia or directly involved in work to sometimes forget the population they're serving and not solicit their input. And so I'm kind of curious how you guys went about that process. Did you involve them in conversations at all levels or did you seek it out through other methods? How did you guys do that?
1: We have... Gotten increasingly intentional about how we make sure patient voices and community voices are a part of our work. At the time of our 2016 grant and what we were trying to do with bringing the consensus group together and establishing PFD and identifying what needed to happen after PFD was established, we really tried to just make sure that parents were at the table and that parents were heard. I think for us as an organization that supports families, we were able to hear from families day in and day out what they were seeing. And so we took those stories and made sure to bring those in the room with us. I think now, fast forward, we have better mechanisms for how we are making sure that those voices are being heard. We have a structure to our organization that is intentional. Throughout the year, there is seeking and soliciting opinions from our families, from our community voice. With this last consensus that I did two months ago between the eating disorder world and the feeding disorder world, as the advocacy organization, we had to fight to make sure that the community was represented. Because- We were intentional about doing an inclusion criteria, but if you do an inclusion criteria only based on published authors, you're leaving out a whole subset of population that can't publish. And that's how you see that perpetuate that there's research that happens and then they're able to get easier access to research and do more research. And then others who are seeing things on the ground don't have the time or the access or the money or resources to do that. And so we feel that it's our goal and our responsibility to make sure that we bridge the gap between not only the different types of clinical populations, but also making sure that the patients are a part of that conversation too.
0: Thank you for that. It's easy to forget the people who are serving in this work. I think we all come at this from, we want to help our communities. And sometimes it's easy to not actually listen and, and forget to listen. So it's, well, really it's to-
1: hard because you're too busy making sure that they have the resources that they need. And we're still working on finding the right balance too. It's asking of time to seek feedback. It's asking of all of these things that you want to make sure you're doing in the right way or doing in a really empathetic way that I think is important. So it's so, I definitely understand why it hard to do. And I think we're trying to learn and iterate and build on what we've done in the past.
0: That's great. Let's move a little bit. Let's shift our focus slightly. Since you've been involved in this work for the past decade, and then some, what are some of the victories you've heard, right? How have you seen not only the work shift, but also the way that community members and and families who are dealing with this directly, how are these things being treated before, which you said being come at from different you know, disciplines. is Whereas now it's, hey, we all have a plan to work off of. And you work on this, you work on this, but at least there's a agreed upon plan for everyone.
1: Yeah. And there's a framework to follow. And I think that's one of the biggest things we've seen, at least in our families, is the pediatric feeding disorder diagnosis and framework has been a welcome change for them because it gives them a framework to follow. It gives them words to use and helps them better understand how all the components are working. Like if my son's vomiting all the time and we're going through feeding therapy, but he's still vomiting, I need to understand that, oh, it's now the medical that we need to look at. Is there an allergy present? And then we compare it with feeding therapy. Then we compare it with what nutrition is going in and making sure we're doing that. And then on top of all of that, the psychosocial implications of consistently feeling pain at mealtimes and building that in ourselves and that child knowing that that mealtime might be painful and building over time. And so I think that's the change we've seen in families. Another victory that's been standing out to me, especially with the eating disorder world and the feeding disorder world come together has been, if we weren't here, it would have continued to be this thing that was shared as a a psychosocial diagnosis, and it would have continued to be fragmented. And it was really interesting bringing the eating disorder world together with the feeding disorder world, because the feeding disorder world was really scrappy and they were like fighting for their existence. And it's because they've been fighting for credibility for 20, 30, 40 years. And the eating disorder world who's had established diagnoses and established researchers for years had this like calm confidence about them. And so for me, I really took that as that's a huge accomplishment of Shannon's work and feeding matters work to really put a stake in the ground and say, this is a condition that is a standalone condition. It's not a symptom of another diagnosis. It's worth paying attention to it's worth you learning about. It's worth teaching about it's worth researching. And I think that's just a huge accomplishment Because as a nonprofit, you're trying to explain why it's important for you to be doing this work, why it's important for you to exist, what you're even trying to accomplish. If we weren't here, so many kids would get the picky eater term and they would just be picky eaters in through teenagers, adults. We all know adults who are diagnosed like picky eaters. When do they have allergies? Did they ever learn to really eat in the right ways? There's so many questions that we need to continue to ask. And until we were here asking those questions, it would have gone undiagnosed and continued to be fragmented. And then I think the bigger victory for generations to come for me is PFD was one moment in time, but the ripple effects of it continue. And we have seen, especially last year in this year, just the world really embrace pediatric feeding disorder as a diagnosis and the language around it, the framework around it, so that we're all talking the same language, they've embraced it. And from feeding matters perspective, we say something about PFD or we speak about it and the world listens. And that is insanely impressive. And something that I don't think we even dreamed of happening in 2016, when we did this grant that we would say something and the entire world would do it. We've been able to have PFD awareness month in May, and that's just grown each year. And that's really become our beacon is we've done this work to get this system change piece, this root cause piece figured out. Now we need to tell people about it. So that's really been our focus, at least recently.
0: That's really cool to hear that it's the ripple effect of it. And then the impact that it just elevated your voice. And I'm sure you guys don't take that lightly and everything you say, there's a purpose. And that's great to hear. For organizations who are thinking about embarking on systems change, we're one of the only foundations here in the state that are focused on systems change. For everyone, we're all doing this work because we want to help our communities. But at the end of the day, what advice would you tell to organizations, whether they're just starting to think about, well, let me ask myself the five whys. Those are the biggest things that I think we often forget. And maybe we don't say it enough here at Vitalist, but we need to. When you're thinking about, when you're trying to get to the root cause of systems change, ask yourself what the issue is and ask yourself why five times. If you can answer that five times, you're probably going to get to the root cause of that issue. So what advice would you have to organizations, coalitions?
1: I think you hit it on the head. Asking the five whys is a really important feature of that because I think we make a lot of assumptions about our work, especially when we can tangibly see our work and see the impact of our work. And then that tells us a story and then that story becomes what we think we can do on a larger scale as it relates to system change. And I think there is a big jump between helping someone individually to helping populations or pulling a system lever that will make an impact for years over years. It's really hard work. It often takes letting go of easy wins to do the hard things. And that is a really hard decision to make as a nonprofit. When you're faced with a population that needs you, it can be really hard to set aside the time to ask yourself those questions and to ask yourself, who else is in this space with me? Feeding Matters was a little bit unique in the sense that we're the only organization of our kind. And so In that sense, we didn't have necessarily like others that were exactly like us or doing work similar to us to turn to. We turned to the closest that we could find that had some overlap. But I think that's another important piece of nonprofits looking to do system change work is you've asked yourself the whys, have you asked yourself the whos, have you taken the time to test any assumptions that you've had? Have you been able to test ideas? I think that's another thing that is really important as it relates to system change work. Because if we would have just continued on with a marketing firm naming this and not testing it with healthcare professionals.
0: I'm just curious what that name was. (laughs) It's Dysnutria. That was from the marketing folks. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so it was a whole process to do it. I understood how we got there. In the time you think it's the right thing. But like unless you're testing your assumptions, unless you're spot checking all of this work with the entire population that is your kind of coalition base or who's representative of your community, like you're going to start to make decisions without knowing that you're making some decisions that will have impact for years to come. So that's my only advice in regards to system change work is I think there's a readiness and you have to be open to it. I was lucky in that I had a CEO, the former CEO of Feeding Matters, Chris Lynn, who just kind of said, yeah, Jacqueline, like build a system map and figure out what needs to happen. Shannon gave us this call and then we were able to build a theory of change and a system framework after that.
0: You've told us what it took. you told us now the name Dysnutria, which I'm sure the academic community and the medical community was, I would assume, not a fan of, nor would they have gotten behind you and no. out of your coalition. That's
1: why you got to go slow sometimes.
0: <laughs> or pivot, right? I think that's another thing that we keep hearing is that you think you're there and you're not quite there and you need to pivot and you need to figure out how to roll with the punches. And we've heard that from so many organizations who've been involved in this work. So what's in the future for you guys? What's in the future for Feeding Matters?
1: There's so many other things. And it's funny how like once you've approached one system piece, there's other levers that you find and you have to figure out what's the timing, what's your readiness to go after some of those. So the work that we did while we were waiting on the publication for PFD was we tried to get a little bit of like what's happening in the like specialty education pathway space in Arizona for individuals that treat Feeding, specifically like feeding therapists, like your speech language pathologist, your occupational therapist. So we kind of went down that pathway and realized, oh, there's just so much more here that they're not really taught this in school and it varies based on school. And there's some board certification for each of these associations, but there's some difficulty in having both people treat a similar thing. And sometimes they work together and sometimes they feel like they have attention and they don't work together. As we continue to ask questions and continue to explore these areas, we end up butting up against a wall. And then, and for me, that's always like, okay, that means we can do something to facilitate this change. And so from an education space, we are currently in the process of like asking ourselves those questions and still in the exploration phase of like, what is needed to provide a specialty pathway for treatment for feeding therapy. But if you keep asking the question, you realize there's not even great education for people that are treating feeding therapy. But then you ask yourself why, and you're like, oh, there's also not great education on what the best treatments are for feeding therapy. And then you ask yourself why from that, and you see, it's also because we don't have a great understanding of this population as a whole because we haven't been able to research it because we didn't have the code. And so there's a readiness for this and there's a timing for this. And so we explore these paths and we try to ask questions and we continue to map, we continue to document to know when that time is. And so on the education side of things, we've started talking to both associations to see what, if any, progress we can make in that area. And then another piece of our work that we were doing here exploring in Arizona was looking at some of the health plan coverage. While having a code does help with insurance coverage, it doesn't automatically make it an accepted thing. And so we're trying to figure out like, what are the other questions that we need to ask in the code space, especially here in Arizona, to help us understand what's happening. And there are things that we found, like there's not a certain screening code that's done at pediatrician level. And so there's like, there might be like 10 more codes that we need to advocate for besides just the diagnostic code. So there's some of that stuff that we're continuing to explore. Overwhelmingly, as an organization, we are very focused on the awareness of PFD. We want PFD to be a household name. We always describe our history as the journey of autism, where 40, 50 years ago, we didn't know what autism was. And oftentimes, parents were blamed. And that is the same thing that's happening with feeding. A lot of parents feel immense shame and blame when their children are diagnosed with any number of the different diagnoses that previously were used, but also pediatric feeding disorder. And it's not their fault. It's a product of a system that's not ready to take them. And so for us, it's awareness first, but really trying to keep our eye on the health insurance, the educational pathway. There's lots of other little things too. I mean, I think some of the things that people think about when they think about system change are like policy changes and legislative changes. And I think that's like one piece of many. The work we did, we end up having to advocate to the CDC, but we didn't have to go and get a bill passed anywhere. I think that's definitely in our future. But I think that's another thing that we think about from a systems change perspective that doesn't always have to be that.
0: Well, Jacqueline, is there anything else that we've missed? So, no, we've this m- has
1: been wonderful. I really appreciate the time to share. We've truly enjoyed our partnership with Vitalist. So much of our learning and our continuous learning, even after our partnership ended with the 2016 grant has been a result of, of Vitalist and all that you have done. It's It was a, a great experience to be able to have that weight lifted off of. Um, we can test, we can trial, we can fail in some places as long as we continue to move forward even seven
0: years, eight years down the road. Thank you so much for joining us. People can find you online on social media. At Feeding Matters,
1: check us out. (laughs) Thanks Sergio, it's been great.
0: Thank you, have a wonderful afternoon.